This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women in sex addiction. My name is Amy. I'm your host here. And I'm a sex addict and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. So today I want to visit this uh, idea of compartmentalization. It's probably a word that you've heard in recovery. Um, it's coming up for me recently as for a few reasons which I'll get into a little bit later. Um, But I wanted to take a moment and really talk about what it is, um, how it affects us, and some of the things that I've been doing recently to kind of combat that in my life. Um, So let's just start with a definition, right? Compartmentalization. I'm sure that you know what it means, that we divide something into sections or categories, right? And all of us do this to some extent. We divide our lives up into sections, categories. We have a professional persona, maybe a family life, a personal life, a spiritual life. We might have all of these different lives that we're living. And if we're living in authenticity and if we're living in congruence, then there's probably not a whole lot of differences between these lives. We don't necessarily act really different in front of coworkers than we do in front of our family. Um, Our our spouse or our partner, you know, sees the same person that we are when we're with our children or when we're at work or when we're um, at church or in other social settings. Um, We have this kind of congruence between uh, all of the different areas of our lives. Now, there might be slight nuances, right? But for the most part, we're the same person because we're living in integrity we're living in authenticity, we're living in congruence. I love the word congruence. Just that we are congruent with ourselves in all of these different areas of our lives. Now, however, compartmentalization um, is different, right? Compartmentalization means that we have these different areas of our lives, but Um, we act very differently in each of these areas and it can occur on a whole different destructive level, usually as a result of what we call cognitive dissonance. So let's start with that definition. What is cognitive dissonance? So cognitive dissonance happens when we have to confront two contradictory or inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or truths. Um, They make us uncomfortable, they cause anxiety, they cause tension as we try to hold kind of these two conflicting ideas inside of ourselves, in our brain, in our heart. Um, And we try to look at these two really conflicting ideas and they cause this cognitive, meaning mental, dissonance, meaning we're out of harmony. Dissonance is the opposite of harmony. So here's some examples of where this might occur, right? Parents say that they love a child um, and yet they hit or neglect or abuse them. So as a child, you're experiencing this cognitive dissonance. 
And I would say that even as a parent, you're probably experiencing cognitive dissonance because you're saying, I mean, you're having to deal with the idea of, I say I love my child, but I am acting in an abusive way. Um, you could also be in a partner spouse uh, relationship where we do the same thing. We profess love and yet we abuse the other person in some way. Um, this can occur like a child may be a total angel in school and 100% compliant and does what the teacher asks and then yet is a total nightmare at home and acts out, lashes out, hits, all sorts of things. Um, an addict may profess to be a highly spiritual person while objectifying and living a life contrary to what their spiritual beliefs dictate. Um, I know that was my experience in addiction for sure. Uh, there are sometimes, like I would say, honor among thieves, where together they may act as honest people. Um, the thief may also be very honest in their home or in their family life, but yet they have this other life where they um, are stealing and are dishonest. Uh, it reminds me of the movie um, Pirates of the Caribbean, right? So they totally glorify this crime that these pirates commit. Um, and they say at the end, you know, that he's a pirate and a good man, right? But it's just this idea that there is honor among these pirates, that they might act honorably among each other, even though they are committing crime. Uh, you can also have someone who might be totally ruthless at work, but very loving at home. I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen that. Um, I had a sales manager that I worked with at a company and at work he was ruthless, like just almost, I would say a bully, not, not almost a bully. He was a bully at work. He was ruthless. He was rude. And yet when I saw him um, uh, with his children, it was like a whole different person. I mean, dramatically different. So much so that I, I had to ask him about it, which he just kind of laughed off. But it was definitely a totally different person. Now, the reason that, why do we compartmentalize, right? And the reason this mental separation that we create, right? These walls that we create in these lives, in these areas of our life, provide this kind of temporary relief for the anxiety or the cognitive dissonance that we have going on. But in each of these cases, each of these examples, our lives are still out of control in some way. And they're out of balance, right? They're out of harmony. That's why we have the word dissonance. It's the opposite of harmony. So we compartmentalize when we have this cognitive dissonance going on. And we have, and it's too much for us. And our brain has to come up with a coping strategy, some way to help us get through what's happening. And even though, you know, it might work temporarily, it provides this relief, it doesn't alleviate the trauma or the unmanageability or the sense of being out of control in our lives. So we might get this temporary relief, but it doesn't really alleviate the problem. And yet, right, even in all of this, this coping strategy of compartmentalization sometimes helps us. And it really helped us if we experienced trauma as children. When we're children, we don't have the emotional capability or capacity 
to maybe handle what's going on or make sense of it. Sometimes even as adults, we don't have the skills to handle some of the horrific things that happen in the world that we have to look at and live with. I think of soldiers and what they see, the trauma that they experience. I think of trauma workers, um, doctors even, that experience this high level of stress, high level of horrific things that they're involved in. I work with a lot of first responders, emergency medical staff, and what they have to see and the amount of death that they deal with, the amount of trauma that they deal with. Not even it's not even their own their own physical trauma, but just having no view and witness and see um, is difficult. It's traumatic for them. And compartmentalization is a coping strategy. It's a tool that they use, and it's needed sometimes just to do their job, just to make it through, just to be able to do some of the things that are required of us in this world. Sometimes compartmentalization is the way that we're able to do it. And I would say that sometimes we even glorify those that can compartmentalize successfully. As I was kind of reading and doing some research for this episode and just in general, as I've been working on this in my own life, um, I saw several articles about how to successfully compartmentalize to be a better employee, to be a better spouse, to be a better entrepreneur, a better friend. And these articles were just touting all of the great things that come into our lives when we can compartmentalize. And they even gave you like strict routines, you know, how to transition from one area of your life to another area of your life successfully in order to leave one and engage in the other. And while compartmentalization is a coping strategy and a strategy that that can be successful for a lot of different things, We also have to look at the downside of it, and especially when we take it to an extreme. Um, I'm reading a book. It's called For Love and Money by Deb Kaplan is the author's name. And I love this quote that she uses in talking about addicts and their compartmentalization and the unmanageability that they face. She says, uh, quote, Addicts live exquisitely in control of a very out-of-control life by compartmentalizing, end quote. Okay, one more time. Addicts live exquisitely in control of a very out-of-control life by compartmentalizing. I That was definitely me when I was living in addiction, um, for sure. <laughs> I was teaching high school um, at the like at the height of my addiction, I would say. Um, I was teaching high school. I was talking to students about healthy relationships and trauma. I had to teach a class about it. And yet I was acting out um, in these really unhealthy ways and unhealthy relationships at the same time. I was attending church weekly. I was professing to live this honest life while at the same time I was lying to friends, family, acting out partners, And I was lying about a whole lot of things, about who I was, about what I was doing, about my experiences, um, about what I looked like. I mean, just tons of things. I was also lying at school. I was lying at work. I I was just lying all the time. And yet I was attending church and professing to be this honest person and live this honest life. Um, I was engaging in activities that I was outwardly condemning other people for, right? So... My life was out of control. Financially, I was a wreck. Um, I 
racked up so much debt. Uh, I paid so many overdraft fees. Uh, it was horrible. Uh, my life was definitely out of control financially, my with my family, um, at work, my career. I, yeah, I was just, there's just so much in my life that was unmanageable. And yet, if most people looking from the outside would say that I was very successful. And that's because I was exquisitely in control of a very out of control life by compartmentalizing. And exactly like what Deb Kaplan says, that was my life. And I was very good at that compartmentalizing thing. It wasn't until a lot of those walls started to come down that I started to see the unmanageability of what was going on really for me in my life. And a lot of times when we talk about compartmentalization, and I know for me, this was the case uh, early on in recovery. We talk about segmenting whole areas of our life, like my professional life, my addictive life, my family life, my life with my friends, my spiritual life. Uh, there, But there are other forms of compartmentalization that affect our lives as well. It doesn't have to be that we block off this whole area of my life and, and it sh- doesn't touch any other area of our life. Um, those that of us that have experienced and suffered with trauma, and really, who of us haven't, hasn't? Who of us hasn't really had some kind of struggle with either capital T or lowercase t trauma in our lives, right? Like, I think the whole world, I think just living in the world can be traumatic. Especially if you're a woman living in the world right now, can be very traumatic whether you've experienced some personal trauma or not, the social trauma that's going on for women right now can be traumatic. So for those of us that have experienced some type of trauma, compartmentalization can go even to a different level, a deeper level. We can compartmentalize certain events into smaller segments that our brain can make sense of because the event as a whole was too much for us, but we could divide it up and we can survive. This came up for me a few years ago when I was discussing a childhood event with my therapist and doing some EMDR, which we'll talk about in a second. She talked about compartmentalizing, compartmentalizing, I'm having a problem with that word today, compartmentalizing emotions from the physical events or the physical sensations that we had. And I hadn't really thought about that before. When we experience trauma and our mind can't handle it, We may separate out the different pieces of a single event. We may build a wall around the emotions and build a wall around the physical events, build a wall around the mental part of the experience. We may separate all of these events into different segments so that we can make sense of what's happening around us or to us. This is sometimes why certain physical events may trigger emotional events that you don't really understand why those are connected, right? Something physical may happen and it causes this emotional reaction and you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense to me. Or vice versa. Um, a, an emotional reaction may trigger a physical sensation and doesn't make sense to you. It also is why we might be able to say words, a physical act, with no emotion to t- attach to them. I can say I love you, but I don't feel anything. I can say I'm sorry, but there's no emotion that comes across with that. Again, if we've experienced some kind of trauma, we may have compartmentalized emotions 
from physical events or even mental pieces or cognitive recognition from the actual physical or emotional piece. It's because we couldn't make sense of it. Whatever was going on, we could our brain could not make sense of it. And our brain is wired to find meaning, right? We want to find the meaning. We want to find the learning and find the meaning in events. And our brain will keep replaying it over and over again. And so to prevent until we find the meaning. That's why it replays it. So to prevent that, right, this coping strategy of compartmentalization allows us to build these walls and segment these events into smaller pieces that we're trying to live with. Now, as this has come up for me a couple times, a couple things recently on why I wanted to talk about this, things that have been coming up for me. As I was coaching a client recently, she was lamenting the fact that she wasn't a disciplined person, like at all. And she kept telling me that over and over again. This is something I've struggled with my whole life. I've never been disciplined. I've never been able to do something consistently. What had happened was I had asked her for a daily check-in as we were trying to kind of stabilize her life and get her on a good path. All I was asking for was a text. I wanted a text, um, you know, every day. And she was trying to tell me that that just wasn't possible. There was just no way that she could do that because she just wasn't a disciplined person. But knowing about her, knowing what I know about her and our work together over the last while, I called her bluff. Because I said, you know, you religiously attend the gym four days a week at five o'clock in the morning. She never misses. You've been doing this for a year, for years, actually, more years than I know about. I, I know about the last three. So don't tell me you're not a disciplined person, I told her. And she just kind of went silent on the phone, right? Because she was confronted with cognitive dissonance. She's telling me I'm not a disciplined person. I never have been, blah, blah, blah. And I'm saying, but you are. You do this consistently. You have done this consistently for three years that I know of. And she's confronted with this idea that these two conflicting ideas. And in that day and in that conversation, I learned something about compartmentalization. I learned that when we compartmentalize in our lives, we can also compartmentalize our skill sets, right? We can compart, I can act this way in this particular situation, but I can't use that skill set in a different, in a different situation. I'll give you a personal example. Um, when I was living in Seattle, I just, right when I'd moved there, I got, I got hired at this job that I totally loved. And in my interview, they told me that the CEO of the company was, um, emotionally and verbally abusive. I mean, they used those words in my interview. And I was like, okay, like, uh, I think I can handle that, right? What do you, what do you say to that? I really wanted the job and so, and I needed the job. And so um, I said, okay, yeah, I can handle that. And the first few weeks, I would say uh, it was rough. He picked on me uh, a little bit kind of right away. And, but he was also kind of, you know, trying to, um, trying to put his best foot forward, right? Because I was the new employee. And then I think it'd been maybe two weeks, three weeks that I was there. And uh, there was a confrontation between this CEO and one of my coworkers. Now, this coworker, um, I really, really liked her. 
But to kind of like put it in reference for my trauma, right? This coworker was older than me. She was about the same age as my mom. She looked similar to my mom. She even um, like had some personality that was similar to my mom. And my CEO, this boss that we had, kind of went after her and attacked her. And it was verbal, um, and it wasn't, it was he didn't, wasn't physical. I mean, he didn't hit her or anything, but he definitely, like, got in her face and, and, uh, and made her cry. And that, like, that was just, like, trauma replicating for me. And so I immediately, without hesitation, stepped in between the two of them, between this woman and my CEO, and just told him to back off. And... I, he was so surprised by me doing that, right? Like back off, he kind of backed off and walked away. Um, And I, you know, we were the same height. So, and this, my mom's quite a bit shorter than me. So this weather woman was shorter and, and like, I think he was a little bit intimidated by my physical presence to like just step in between the two of them. And he backed off and I kind of like walked him out of her office and negotiated with him on, you know, leaving her alone and I would figure this out and the whole thing. And, 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 and I did, I figured it out. I got her situated. I comforted her, got her settled, you know, whatever was going on. I made him happy back in his office. And then I sat between the two of them, right in the hallway, making sure it didn't happen again. (laughs) Now, I could do that for her. I could step up and I could advocate for her and I could tell him to back off. I could do things for her that I couldn't do for myself. When he attacked me, the you know, just a few days later, I couldn't even respond. I couldn't even say no. I, I couldn't even stand up for myself. Um, because again, I had compartmentalized this skill set. Uh, I could advocate for other people. I could stand up, I could do what needed to be done, but when it came to myself, I couldn't do it. It took me months um, of working with my therapist, coaching me through to the point where I could finally stand up for myself, um, stand up to him for myself. And once I had that and could kind of use that skill set across the board in my life, right? It wasn't compartmentalized to this certain situation. I could use that skill set to advocate for myself, to advocate for others, and be able to do it in a healthy way. And it was probably, a, like I said, like probably a year before I could do that for myself. And and it changed my whole life. It changed my whole, especially at work, that dynamic that we had there. In fact, I remember uh, a few times after I had kind of stood up for myself, he sat in my office once, came in, sat in my office, and he just stared at me and said, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Like, you don't know what to do with a woman who won't let you abuse them? Like, is that what you're asking me? That's what I asked him. Like, is that what you're saying? And he just was like, I just don't know what to do with you and got up and walked out. And, and our relationship changed. I ended up quitting a few years later. Um, but it was just, a for me, you know, like that whole idea of compartmentalizing skill sets that, that they compartmentalize to different areas of our life. Maybe that's something that you've noticed about your life too. For me, one of the goals that I have in recovery is that I want to live more authentic and more congruent life right? I don't, I can't afford to have these compartmentalized 
areas of my life anymore because that's where addiction lies. That's where trauma lies. That's where really unhealthy behaviors lie. For me is when I have these compartmentalized areas. I have to be congruent. And so I have, there's two questions that I have to keep asking myself about compartmentalization. The first one is, is my compartmentalization showing up and again, right? Like I have to be aware of that. Am I starting to compartmentalize? Um, and I have to be, I have to be honest and I have to be aware of what's going on. Am I keeping secrets, right? Am I lying, um, am I acting incongruent in certain areas of my life? I have to keep that compartmentalization aware. And then if it is, right, if it's showing up in my life, I have to ask myself, what is my compartmentalization trying to hide from me? Because we compartmentalize when our brains can't handle what's going on. And so what is it that it's trying to hide from me, right? What is it trying to prevent me from seeing? So how, those are the two questions that I kind of work on, right? Like is, I have to be aware of compartmentalization. Is it showing back up in my life? Am I lying? That's one of the ways I know that it's kind of showing back up in my life. Also, you know, am I acting differently? Am I behaving really differently in different areas of my life? And then the second question is, if it's showing up, I have to ask myself, what is my compartmentalization trying to hide from me? What is it trying to prevent me from seeing or you know trying to help me cope with something that's going on and so what's going on so the question is then how do we heal that right how do we heal compartmentalization how do we change how do we prevent ourselves from doing that so the opposite word the opposite of compartmentalization would be integration right? We have to integrate our lives. We have to become integrated rather than sectioned off. And we start to integrate our emotions into our lives. And we start to integrate our skill sets into other areas. And we act more congruently across the board. So I have a few exercises that uh, I've done in the past that have helped me with that integration piece. Uh, I'm going to start with one that I did um, right before my dad passed. So uh, one of the things that got me into recovery was my dad's terminal cancer diagnosis. Um, I, I I had so much anger towards my dad and there was just this like gut feeling that said, if I don't do something about that anger before he dies, it will literally probably kill me. It will eat me alive and it will probably kill me. And I just had this feeling like if I don't do something now, then I'm, I'm going to die from this anger. And, and so I started therapy, you know, pretty quickly after one of those, after that diagnosis. And I started working with my therapist and while we were working on addictive issues right away, we were also working on issues with my dad. And one of the reasons, one of the things that he had me do was he had me take a single piece of paper and I had to write on this piece of paper, right, um, all of the good things that my dad had contributed to, to my life and all of the reasons I was angry and the trauma or the bad pieces, right, if you want to call them good and bad. But these things that had happened to me and the 
the rule was it had to be equal. <laughs> I had to put, for every negative thing, I had to put a bad thing. I mean, a good thing, a positive thing on there, right? For every trauma piece, I had to put a, a good memory, a good contribution to my life. And so I had to put these all on the same piece of paper. And it was difficult. It was really difficult because I could easily come up with the bad things because I had so much anger. Um, but I had to really work to come up with the good things that uh, to balance it out. Right. And and I had to have them on the same piece of paper. And I remember working on it. It was difficult. Um, and I and there were days when like I would stare at them and I would hold that piece of paper and I couldn't even handle it. So I would just like put it away. But the idea, right, was that I was going to hold these two conflicting ideas, this cognitive dissonance on the same piece of paper. And I had to stare at them and hold them in my hand, in my brain, in my heart, in my thoughts, all at the same time. I still have this piece of paper because it was highly impactful for me. I remember stay, staring at it for daily. I Like every day I would pull it out. It was part of my like morning routine. I would pull it out and stare at it for Sometimes I would time myself because I just was like, I just want to put it away. I couldn't even handle it. But daily for weeks, I would pull it out and I would look at it. Sometimes I couldn't do it and I would just put it away and cry. Um, I couldn't hold these two ideas in my head that my dad was a good man and abusive at the same time. Uh, my dad was complicated and he was affected by his own trauma and his own past. It took me weeks to start holding that information together at the same time, in my head, in my heart. But you know what? After weeks and weeks of arguing with myself and trying and crying and trying again, the gift in the struggle of all of that was that I got my dad back. I could love this man again, knowing that he could be both, that he could be a complicated mess and this amazing man that contributed so many positive things to my life. I didn't have to compartmentalize that anymore. I could accept both. I could offer understanding and acceptance. It is what allows me to love him still and to appreciate what he gave me and the contributions that he made to my life. And today, I miss him deeply. <laughs> Earlier today, I saw this man that looked like my dad. Oh, man, that's so hard for me when that happens. Anyway, um, as I've been doing my assessment and inventory in my own life currently, I've noticed areas of my life that I've been compartmentalizing. In some areas, that's skill sets. I've compartmentalized a certain skill set in my life, and I've not allowed the other you know, areas of my life or to use it across the board. Sometimes that's for me, like that's acceptance, you know, when I deal with or when I talk with um, friends that are in recovery, I seem to have a lot more acceptance um, than I do sometimes in other areas of my life. I'm not as understanding. Um, I've learned that the more that I can treat people like we're all just, you know, addicts recovering, <laughs> not even addicts, but we're all just recovering from something. The more I treat people like we're all in some kind of program. Uh, the happier I am, for sure. But I've noticed recently that I've, I've not been extending that level of acceptance to people outside of my recovery circles. I don't like that. I don't like that about myself. I want to be more congruent. I want to be more accepting across the board. I've also noticed that as I've been moving more, so I started this yoga for trauma release class. It is amazing, right? This um, yoga practitioner is 
fantastic. I really love her. And I've noticed that certain emotions come up during certain poses or movements. And I've struggled as I've tried to integrate these feelings. They like, we were doing this certain thing the other week and like just this huge amount of anger came up for me. And I've noticed that the more I've been moving, um, the more that I've had these triggers and these emotions come up that have been activated for me in that movement. And I know that that's part of integration, right? As I continue to move and um, continue to feel that I start to integrate those feelings back into my life. But it's required me to, you know, really dig deep and figure out like, why do I think this anger is coming up? Why is it coming up with this particular movement? How, you know, what could that be? And really dig into that. So those are two exercises that I've done um, that have really helped me to become more integrated. Um, Also, I would say, here's a few more. Uh, How do you become more integrated, right? Um, These are all things that I've done before that have been really, really helpful for me. Um, One is EMDR. So if you're not familiar with EMDR, it's a trauma treatment. Um, It's eye movement desensitization, something with an R. Um, I'll remember in a second. I should have looked that up. I'm sorry. EMDR. Um, it's really helpful for integrating things in your life. Uh, it feels kind of weird. It's written, it was designed by a woman. She wrote a book. Wow. I really should have looked this up because I'm not remembering. Um, the book is called Getting Past Your Past. And I loved um, the book and I loved, there we go. Uh, Francine Shapiro is her name. Francine Shapiro, Getting Past Your Past is the name of the book. And she came up with the EMDR treatment and it was really, really helpful for me. Um, she teaches you in the book, Getting Past Your Past, um, how to do a little bit of it yourself and how to kind of treat those trauma events. And that was really helpful for me too. There were things that I felt like I did just by myself and worked through. And there was some that I did with a EMDR practitioner that has also been incredibly helpful for me. So that's one way. It's an inter- it's a trauma integration therapy. Um, there's other ways, you know, that you can do it. Having Sometimes we talk about having discussions with your addict. Um, I know Patrick Carnes is a huge advocate of this and has a whole book called The 40-Day Focus where you have these discussions with your addict and literally you're like writing out lines from yourself and then from your addict or your other persona that you've kind of compartmentalized and you're asking your addict questions and you're asking this persona questions in, in an effort to kind of pull down those walls, right? Like some of the questions are about, you know, why, why do I need an addiction? Right. You know, why, why do I need these things? What are you trying to, you know, help me with, right? How are you trying to help me cope? What are you trying to help me cope with? And basically you're trying to integrate all of these ideas into one person. So we don't have to have an addict quote persona anymore. Right. Um, I've seen something similar done with chair discussions where you literally have like two chairs and you sit in one and you, you know, if you don't like to write, this would be a, a another option. You kind of sit in one and you talk and you sit in the other one as your other persona that you've compartmentalized and you talk and you, and you go back and forth. And I've seen that be highly successful as well, particularly uh, if people don't like to write, right? Um, but also kind of that physical movement of going back and forth helps you understand the exhaustion that comes in from compartmentalization. 
If you're feeling tired all the time or exhausted, that might be part of the deal is that you've compartmentalized. And so it takes so much effort to do that. So those are just some ways that you can work on integrating. There are other therapies, lifespan integration. There's other things that you can do to really work on integrating all of these experiences that you've had in your life to become more congruent, to become more authentic, to live more in integrity through in all the areas of your life rather than compartmentalize. I, as I've been doing um, my own assessment, right, and kind of seeing these areas in my life where I'm blocking things off again, it's been a good reminder, a good reminder that I have to be conscious and aware of those things. And I have to actively work to be consistent and take those inventories and, and really ask myself and be honest with myself about where I am or am not compartmentalizing. As always, I hope this is helpful for you today. I really invite you to notice and assess kind of your level of compartmentalization in your life. Um, are you compartmentalizing? Is it is it serving you? And what is it trying to hide from you, right? What is it trying to, to keep you from seeing in your life? Because when we're compartmentalizing, we're not living in congruence. And that's going to cause some that conflict and that cognitive dissonance that we're going to have to somehow alleviate. And a lot of us that are struggled with recovery from some kind of addiction, we, we alleviate that stress, not only by compartmentalizing, but by acting out. And we need to prevent ourselves from acting out, right? And uh, to get our lives back into where we want to be. So I hope this was helpful for you today. I I really think that compartmentalization is one of those things we've got to keep control of. As always, I hope that you know that no matter where you are, no matter what's going on, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how compartmentalized your life is at the moment, if it's like, you know, into a million different sections, you are still 100% worth recovery. 100%. I know that. I, I absolutely know that. And if you don't, you can trust me until you feel that for yourself. Um, I invite you to reach out. Uh, you can email me, amy at worthrecovery.com. You can check out our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our Twitter page. I'd love to hear from you. Um, and I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.